0: Hey, you ever listen to stock
1: radio? Ever listen to stock radio on weed?
0: Fortunately we have a we've a bit of bad connection so you're you're cutting out. I, I imagine you can hear me okay. Uh I, so I think I'm going to have to public. call back in unfortunately. So it was like, a guy okay, right. to uh, Let me let me call you back from a different line yeah, and see feel if uh, it's clear. All right. All right. Perfect.
1: I'm right back. Chuck will be back. We heard him okay, but he wasn't hearing us all right. And when this is a conversation. We need to be able to hear both sides of the conversation. Uh,
0: yeah, but uh, we'll make we'll make this work.
1: All right, got I, it. I Great to back. Back. All right, glad to have you back. Sorry any connection issues you're having, but we can hear you fine. So hopefully you can hear us and we can have a good conversation. So Great. what think we were saying? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, go ahead. Been a
2: little while. Yeah, you were-
0: yeah, when, uh, you know, last time uh, we had to cancel, I think um, yeah, our stock was halted. We had uh, just announced a uh, financing. I had to kind of go look back at what was going on there. We had so much uh, activity in, uh, in that five-month period. Uh, so it was um, so, uh, during the middle of finance, it's kind of the worst time to be going on this type of show. So anyways, I'm glad to be back today, and I bet you guys would have been up to
1: Glad to have you back. So everything worked out well. Back uh, in business. Stock is no longer halted, and company seems to be making a lot of moves. I see your name in the news a lot with different joint ventures and uh, you know things that your, your company's taken part in. So I guess let's start there. I saw two big pieces of news. First is an agreement, a definitive agreement with.
0: Yeah. So we've. Um... You are providing uh, what we've internally called uh, we've called a dope note, a uh, debt obligation, uh, and payment in in, uh, in payment in, in product and um, product equivalent, I guess. And um, you know that is a, a financing with a, a cultivator out of uh, a licensed producer out of uh, Alberta, a uh, province that we didn't have um, any agreements with. Uh, and what's notable about that agreement is that uh, you know, Sundial uh, has recently brought in some, some new executives. We have a, a CEO from the uh, uh from Molson Coors, fairly senior executive from that company that's joined sundial so you know we're see what they're going to produce and and for us it gives us um, a pretty short term uh, return of some product it's not our, our typical deal uh, but we also like that sundial's been able to attract um, institutional debt uh, from uh, the Alberta Treasury board known as ATB in Alberta and I think um, you know it's really interesting to see like. License- just starting to unlock, you know, true kind of bank financing versus the, uh, you know, the whole industry to date has really largely been, you know, financed by uh, equity underwritings. And so now we're seeing uh, people with like ATB coming into the space and, uh, you know, one or two of our big banks looking at how they can lend into the industry. So, you know, we're really excited to to be part of that story.
1: And explain non-delusive debt. What makes, you know, what makes that non-delusive?
0: Yeah, so because we're not we're not taking any uh, any equity from them, it's it's a pure debt instrument, um, and uh, unlike our typical streaming agreements, which have uh, a mix of equity and uh, and essentially a royalty debt uh, as part of it.
1: All right, we're talking to Chuck Rafici. He is CEO of Cannabis Wheaton and also chairman on the National Access, on National Access Canada. And I guess, Chuck, we should start there. For people who haven't heard Chuck Rafici before or know exactly what a cannabis streaming model is, which is what Cannabis Wheaton uses, give a little bit of a background on the difference between what Cannabis Wheaton does compared to other companies in Canada.
0: Yeah, it's a great, yeah. Uh, a great place to go. It's, um, it's, cannabis, weed- uh, cannabis weed- you know, the streaming is a term that um, is known in the, in the mining industry of which, you know, a, a Canadian, a Canadian kind of investor markets are well known from. And, and uh, so that was something that um, uh, we decided to adapt to, to the cannabis space. And so what's, what streaming is in the essence, providing capital to build out a facility, you know, in this case, for either existing licensed producers to expand or, you know, late stage applicants that are ready to build that first facility to get licensed. And then what we do is, is, uh, is provide that capital, but then we, we provide it at a much, a much, a much lower amount of dilution or at a much higher valuation, which is better for the producer. But in exchange for that kind of better valuation, we take a stream, which is a, essentially a royalty product. So, you know, as an example, um, you know, we might take, you know, certainly we might pay for an entire facility expansion, but then have the right to purchase, say, 30% of all the product of the facility that we paid for um, at, at essentially a cost. And so what it enables is our, our partners get to, you know, access capital, give up less of their company. Um, and then also benefit from the team of experts that we've assembled at Cannabis Wheaton, whether it's, uh, you know, kind of industry expertise or, uh, you know, regulatory, legal, uh, cultivation, design, and really de-risk and accelerate their, you know, their plans. And then, you know, Wheaton benefits from uh, locking down supply through our partners because, you know, like in any jurisdiction that's going to face legalization, uh, you know, especially like with Canada, we're, gonna have, we're going into a supply-constrained environment where demand is going to grow you know, 10, 20, 30x over the next couple of years. And so in the short term, there's just tons of value in having supply. Uh, so that's what we've been, busy, um, you know, we've been busy locking down that supply, you could say, uh, to kind of build our, our domestic production platform over the next uh,
1: year or two. And that makes great sense because the companies need capital and you need products, so you're supplying them at a discount what they need, and in return, they're supplying you at a discount what you need. So seems to be a win-win for you. Yeah, th-
0: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're not just – so it started off as more of a financial arrangement with a bit of, you know, a bit of smart money, you could say, with, you know, having our, our team of uh, of kind of, you know, industry experts, but it's now evolved to plugging into our platform. So now that we have – uh, you know we have agreements with you know over a dozen partners at various stages of funding and, and due diligence, and so we 're building a, a domestic supply which is you know licensed diversified is geographically diversified so we start looking like uh the term I use is a synthetic license producer you know we 're actually not in the business of, of really cultivating and growing ourselves, but when you look at our our, our the platform, we start looking like a large a large producer uh, and then we then added to that um, you know we bought we bought our own license. Um, a small license so that we, we've rebranded Colab. And that Colab is really there as a, a regulatory tool because once you have a license, once you're in that club in Canada, you can accelerate uh, additional license sites. So our partners that aren't quite yet licensed, you know, or new new deals that we look to, we can essentially fast track those applications by using our existing license. So we have that. But what we're really excited about is we're starting to build value kind of what we call you know midstream product midstream value which is IP you know licensing brands, uh looking at how we can take that product and get and get the highest margin, uh, you know, whether that's extraction technologies, uh, a dealers license, other aspects that we're looking to bolt onto our platform so that, you know, if our partners want to be just just great farmers, they can do that and then we can do the processing for them. Or if they, you know, if they don't want to go out and license whether it's a celebrity endorsement or license a great, you know, edible or drink uh, you know, recipe, you know, we're going to have that at the Wheaton platform level. And then, and then the third piece to our to the puzzle is we're looking at distribution, and that's both domestic, uh, you know, negotiating agreements with large, uh, you know, large suppliers on the on the future uh, you know, pharmacy dispensing, as well as uh, with existing uh, groups that are looking at. Legal provincial distribution you know in all the different provinces in Canada, and then international distribution, so that our partners really know that you know they' that they can grow a lot of products uh, and you know we're really bullish on you know, every legal time that gets produced in Canada you know I really believe is going to be is going to get sold for for many years, but we can ensure that they capture the best margin for that product by you know having as many supply uh, and distribution channels as possible
1: and that kind of makes sense for your partners too because very few people in cannabis are good at everything. So like you said, if they're really good growers, but they're not really good marketers, you can help them. At the same time, if they're really good marketers and don't have cultivation or distribution ironed down, you can help them with that too. Is there a higher fee or, you know, like, is it more expensive if they need to, to work with cannabis? Weed and if they need certain aspects of the process compared to others, like for instance, if they need marketing compared to cultivation, is that a higher price that they pay to work with you?
0: Yeah, I mean everything that you know. When it comes to our streams, we do everything on just kind of a cost, typically cost plus plus ten percent model. So they um, they kind of get the platform benefits uh, for free. Now, in the case of um, uh, you know doing uh, uh, doing extraction for them, you know there, there's some areas where there'd be some extra fees, but really the, the core value is. You know, because because we we rely on our partners for that production, we usually have a minority equity interest in each of our partners. You know, we're, we're aligned with them to make sure that you know they run the best business possible. So you know, like you said, if we have partners that are great marketers but lack supply, you know, we're going to balance product between our platform before going outside of our platform. So you know, the the you know collectively want to you know we want the health of the all the partnerships to do well. And because cannabis, you know, it is going to get slowly commoditized over time, but it's the, obviously we know it's nowhere near a commodity. The quality of the product, you know, it matters. It's going to really affect the price point. And so, you know, we, we're there to work with our partners to make sure they, you know, they build the best facility to grow the best pot, that they have, you know, ongoing ongoing issues, whether it's QA, regulatory, et cetera, making sure that those, you know, that what they produce gets the highest yield uh, so that, you know, that improves the value of our investment as well.
1: And you mentioned extraction. Are you able to extract in Canada, or is that just on the medical side that you're allowed to do extractions? I remember in the beginning it was flower only. So how's that changed?
0: Yeah, I mean, for for, uh, for too long for it was flower only. But we've had yeah. uh, you know what I call MCT. Um, I, I forget the acronym. Monochromatic something triglyceride, uh, like a coconut oil or different, uh, just a basic oil extraction that we can do today on the medical regime. Uh, I mean the rec regime is is still coming in we, we don't even have the final reg for the reg regime, but the government has told us that day one uh you know, the the you know everybody would bet on that not changing but within about a year of us having legalization so kind of you know fall of twenty nineteen we should start seeing edibles, uh, tinctures, vape pens, and other types of products come into, the, come into play because you know, if they want to get rid of the black market, they have to let producers produce the products that you find in every other dispensary and every other kind of major market. So those are going to come, but uh, not right away.
1: How is cannabis Suite able to set themselves up to be able to take advantage of that when it happens? Is that something that you guys are looking that far into the future or right now are you going, look, what we have to work with, is what they allow us to do, so we're not looking into edibles. Into, we're going to wait until that market opens.
0: Yes, no. So we don't have anything, uh, you know, finalized on the platform now, but we're in active discussions on on many of those fronts. And I, and I can say generally, you know, my view is that you know, or our view is very, it's very important that when you know, the, when our regulator essentially unlocks shell space, you know, at some point, um, the Canadian regulator is going to say, okay, you can now make vape pens and then you know the the very legal dispensers are going to now you know have new shelves of vape pens you want to make sure that you already have a vape pen manufactured ready to go and, and the nature of licensing allows you to kind of build up inventory for products that you can't yet sell yet we can do r and d on those products and so you know that that's where there's a lot of value because you know it's free market share when when you know if you're the, if you're one of the first tens that that people see um, you know you don't have to fight for for that brand awareness. So we think there's a huge kind of land grab on brand awareness. So yeah, so absolutely. We want to make sure that as every new product comes online, that we have, you know, SKUs for that category. And so that's really kind of what we, we call our midstream value, locking down IP agreements, licensing agreements with different brands, uh, you know, stuff that we see in the States. So there's a lot of things that we're working on to make sure that we have a wide range of products as we'll get turned on.
1: Yeah, because like in Colorado, for instance, when you go there, Almost no one's actually smoking weed. Everybody is, when I say everybody, most people are using edibles, using topicals, using pens. Very few people are actually smoking flour. So it seems like... Because
3: you can't do that everywhere. You smell it. No, not just that.
1: I'm telling you. It's the way people like to enjoy cannabis.
2: Yeah, now sure. smoking it
1: was the only thing that's been available to everyone well, once you have the option to either eat something and get a different feeling that gives you uh you know different medical benefits, very few people are going to look at it and go, "I think the better way is to smoke which which always you know made me wonder with Canada. why do they yeah do no, it thing? never
0: made made a lot of sense. Uh, you know, those rules were set up uh, under a previous government. You know, uh, our former prime minister, Harper, uh, Stephen Harper, famously said during an election debate that you know, everybody knows that, you know, cannabis is infinitely worse than tobacco. So that's the kind of mind that was guiding the policy of, of really only doing the minimum that the courts required, because all the cannabis, you know, our entire medical system in Canada has been patients going to court all the way to the Supreme Court. And you know our patients are batting a thousand percent against the government. So every time the government used to do the bare minimum, and then finally with this with this new government with Justin Trudeau, they've kind of obviously taken a very different view. And so we're going to see those products come into play. But Canada has always been very, um, you know, uh, very cautious when it comes to you know we tend to overregulate and then loosen things up. I think uh, to the opposite of perhaps uh, the Colorado experience. And I think yeah. a lot of the policymakers in Canada, you know, have been to Colorado, have been to. Uh, I think to Washington State and other jurisdictions, and you know they've heard from from lawmakers, policymakers that you know the, the issues around edibles, right? I mean, it's very easy to, you know, you get a lot. Uh, it's easier to green out on an edible than than on other products, and that's why I think edibles will be will be last. And then you throw in the food safety issues and homogenization. There's just it's a more complex manufacturing process. So we will get there, um, but you know I'm not. Um, I don't think we're in a rush to get there from, from the industry's perspective because I believe that the industry is going to have a hard time keeping up uh, with just meeting the, the flower and kind of, uh, you know, I'll call it the boring oil uh, segment of the rec market um, because uh, of just the flood of new, of new consumers coming in. Uh, and so the, um, you know, we'll kind of get going, but I, you know, for, for me, I think, I think pens are, you know, a huge growing demographic. Uh, and of course, you know, edibles, Especially in the medical market, to sleep overnight, you know, I mean, smoking is certainly not the way of the future, and yeah, you see that in Colorado and other places.
1: Yeah, and is the government taking that into consideration that now with recreational users uh, being there, that most important is making sure that the medical patients still get their medicine before recreational people can take advantage. Like, is there anything in place that's trying to help make sure patients come first?
2: Yeah. So,
0: I mean, it gets talked about, there's been nothing put in place that uh, is forcing producers to serve medical patients first, but um, systemically it's going to happen because, uh, you know, on the medical side um, producers can sell directly to a patient. So they get a retail margin on that product uh, where on the rec side, um, every, every promise, basically every single Canadian rec sale is going to go through a government distributor who's going to take their cut. And so, just you know, for for pure profit motive, uh, producers are always going to serve medical customers first. At least, at least you know the way the the system has worked out, uh, that won't be an issue. Um, and it's um, you know it's interesting. It's going to be different advertising rules, um, and, and uh, you know, in some ways, uh, I think the government distribution you know, it's going to be a much better retail experience. Let's say for. People that are what I'll call lifestyle medical, you know, they have a medical condition, but they also like to use it recreationally, um, who who could choose either path. Um, the better path in Canada is going to be on the medical side because they're going to be able to, you know, do online shopping, go directly to who they want, buy that product, have it shipped to their home. But on the rec side, you know, they're going to have to go to a government store. It's going to be at a bad location or use probably a, a less efficient government retail, you know, online system. So it's just going to be a better experience on the medical stream. Uh, so that's good for everyone all around.
3: I know in the U.S., uh, their plan is to give the higher THC uh, marijuana to medical patients, uh, lower cost to medical patients, something like that, and it works.
0: Yeah, so we haven't – I mean, the rates still aren't finalized, which is kind of funny. It's, it's one of these situations where the government um, – you know, they're they're moving very fast. We have kind of both legislative and regulatory um, uh, uh, changes happening it's kind of happening concurrently, and so we actually don't know what the rules will be. They have recommended um, there's been some recommendations around THC caps, maybe different price points around THC, but we don't know what it will be yet. I mean, one thing for sure, uh, I mean, I, I certainly almost bet my life on is that we will not see any kind of THC cap on on medical products. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, like Colorado, you know, you see much higher doses, you know, the same the same product on a rec store versus the medical, you know, medical uh, dispensary, you know, very, very different dosage, etc. And usually a lower price point on the medical side. And I think we'll see that in Canada as well. Not not on the retail side, our government's actually charging a, a tax on, on the medical users as well as the rec users, which is going to be um, there's going to be some, some patients fighting against that pretty, pretty vigorously. But we, we are starting to see some of our health benefit coverage, uh, drug coverage plans start to cover medical cannabis. And so, you know, some people are, not, are going to have their employer's insurance plan start paying for it, which is which is great for people that have, you know, some medical patients face pretty huge bills. And so that's um, that's going to create some, of some price differences.
3: Speaking of the tax rate that they're going to be adding on, what are your thoughts on the black market? And do you think that price-wise consumers would benefit buying legally with that tax rate added in and what the costs of the dispensaries are that are going to charge more money to them, neighbor down on the block. No.
0: Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, where, you know, the one thing that that people won't get in dispensaries, uh, at least um, I'm not, I'm not foreseeing this in Canada is any kind of volume discount. So I think for, for light users, or, or you know, light medical or light recreational, low dose. It, it's not really much of a difference. But when it comes to the very, um, you know, people that are consuming uh, copious amounts um, on the rec side, uh, it, that's going to hit the wallet. And so that's why, you know, the black market's never going to go away overnight. Um, a stat that I really like is, you know, after alcohol prohibition in the U.S., I think it took 15 years for uh, legal sales to be equal to the to the prohibition kind of black market sales. You know, it's not going to take that long, but certainly people aren't going to go stop seeing their dealer just because there's a legal store the next day. So there's going to be a, you know, a few years of transition to smooth that out.
1: Right. That's crazy that the government is moving so fast, yet at the same time, you're less than six months away from the initial date, and you don't even know the rules yet. How hard is it to help build businesses that don't know the rules of the business they're going to be operating in.
3: Yeah, crazy. They call this me anxiety. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, a lot of people are, uh, you know, uh, a lot of urgency, kind of a hurry up and wait. I think it affects people more on the retailing side. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I am chairman of national access uh, cannabis and that is a, currently a clinic that lets people get their legal medical card but they uh, have applied and successfully kind of been in one of the finalists to get you know I think really one of the first federally legal dispensary licenses uh, in, in the world um, you know, for a private enterprise dispensary license in, in the province of Manitoba, they awarded four licenses. One of them went to a group that included Native Roots out of Colorado. You know, great operators down there. And so, you know, for uh, on the on the retailing side, you know, it's really crazy. You're having to lock down leases. Um, you know, you don't even know you don't even know what the price point will be. You know, you know how much will the will the provincial distributor, the regulator, be selling you the product wholesale? Um, so you're kind of just. You know, you're, you're just betting on first mover advantage being valuable, which I think it will be, especially on the retail side. You know, whoever gets those first licenses, um, when all the governments realize they have too few stores, as they usually do when they launch legalization, then they issue you know more licenses, cohort of stores, those retail stores, is going to have a huge advantage on applying for additional licenses. So that's, I mean, that's probably the the, the craziest kind of um, part business to be in right now, because you're locking in on you know you're locking in on physical you know retail space and leases and building up staff, not knowing anything about your economic model. Um, But, you know, I I think like anything in the cannabis space, being a first mover usually, usually works out well in the end. Um, When it comes to production and what Wheaton's doing, you know, we, we don't know what the exact rules will be around, you know, legalization, but we have enough of a, um, you know, we can look at our alcohol distribution model and we kind of, it varies across the country in different, different provinces and jurisdictions. And so, uh, most provinces are kind of following what they do with alcohol. So you get a sense of the kind of margins they want to have, the kind of taxes they're going to they're going to extract. And so you can kind of build, you can kind of plan around that. Um, and at the same time, you know, one thing that's nice uh, versus, let's say, Colorado where, you know, in Colorado you have a uh, medical uh, product and you have a rec product. And, you know, a plant or a seed is either a medical seed or a rec seed and you can't intermix. You know, in Canada it's just one set of production. And so it, it's just it's just pot until it gets to, to, to distribution. And at that point, it becomes a record med. And so we already know what the production rules are. You only have to worry about things like THC caps, potentially, or, and, and lots of new advertising guidelines. It's going to be, you know, Canada has pretty strict tobacco advertising rules, and they're taking a lot of those rules and putting them on Canada. So it's going to be really hard to market the products.
1: And I know the provinces are all coming out with their own regulations. Is it? The way it works in the United States, where if it's grown in, let's say, Ontario, then that cannabis can only be distributed in Ontario? Or do you have the ability, no matter where cultivation is done, to distribute it to different provinces in Canada?
0: Yeah, luckily, we'll. we'll so, I mean, there's two, ways, there's two parts of that question. There's nothing in the rules preventing, you know, we, we can produce in, in Ontario, you know, we can produce in one province and distribute it anywhere, but we are seeing certain provinces uh the province of quebec um has uh only signed supply agreements you know they, they sign wholesale agreements for their provincial distributor only with people that have production in that province and so you know there's kind of like a buy local first uh kind of view that we're seeing um so which is why at whedon you know we, we have uh partners in in most of the provinces but we are trying to fill that in because it um you know it will matter in some jurisdictions but you know, it's um, there's going to be such a demand for product that I think you know some provinces can try to buy local first, but then when they run out of product, they're going to just be going to anybody in Canada anyway. So
1: it's, um, I think it's just more of a good headline for them. Are they doing it more for jobs? You know, to, to let their uh, their people know that they're trying to create jobs for them, not jobs for other provinces. Is that the main thought process behind limiting, or is it just greed?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's just jobs. I think it's just good politics to try to give preference to their, to their local, you know, local employers.
1: And I've heard you talk about jobs, and that being an important part of cannabis in Canada. How many jobs have been created in, in your best guess so far? And how will that increase? Like times what will that increase once recreational cannabis is being distributed?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, certainly, I mean, a lot of jobs uh to, you know, at a macro level, uh, you know, I, I, the top the top 10 or you know, the top 10 producers in Canada probably each have several hundred employees. Um or and then, you know, from there it scales down, but you know, you'd be uh, probably getting close to 10,000 if not, you know, certainly many thousands of jobs already just on the pure production side, but then throw in the whole ecosystem and it it uh it's certainly be a lot more. Um, you know, over the next few years. So it's, you know, it's it's real. Then, you know, going to a community level, you know, certainly, you know, when when I, you know, co-founded Tweed in, in Smith's Falls, a small town outside of Ottawa, you know, 7,000 people that, roughly that live there, and they had lost 2,000 manufacturing jobs uh, over the previous five years, so, you know, probably probably like half their workforce. Uh, and now, you know, Tweed is the largest employer in the town and I think will employ three to 400 people locally. And we see this in other areas where uh, we have a, a facility project uh, in a little town uh, called Chesterville, uh, a former Nestle food plant. Uh, you know, all these old, these ex food manufacturing plants are, are great are great to convert into indoor uh, grow ops. And again, this is like a town of of like 1500 people and they lost a plant that employed like 400. And so, you know, for those towns, you just get huge community support because they have this huge factory that's going nowhere, and I, I can't think of any other industry um, that would take over. You know, that kind of facility and all that power and infrastructure. It's really, at least in Canada, I think it's only good for one thing, and that's, and that's growing. And that's growing cannabis, and so you know, you get you get huge community support, and uh, uh, it's nothing like you know having the city council on board, um, you know, saying bring bring jobs. So it's just a, it's a great story for those communities, and, and it's a it's great for us to have. A community partner um that really wants us there right there's no, there's no sense going into communities that don't that don't want us
1: and Tweed's story really hit home with that because it was a hershey factory you would have thought that there would be other uses for a hershey factory that sat there vacant until tweed came along and said we can grow cannabis there so i am surprised that things stay vacant for that long, yet Canada can move right in and start producing and bringing those jobs back. I hope the United States is paying close attention to that, because we've got some cities that could use jobs like nothing else. And hopefully we save some of their production materials so they can make edibles, right? Edible chocolate. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, any negative yeah, stories
1: yeah. Any, like that? Uh, any towns that have had issues from allowing cannabis that you've heard of?
0: I haven't heard of any, any towns that have had issues once they've let cannabis companies operate. There's certainly been communities that have not been um, wanting to have it. Uh, I know, you know, personally, um, you know, we had looked at a different town prior to setting up at the Hershey plant, uh, you know, back again, this was early days for Canada. And, you know, I think because of the stigma around cannabis, you know, the, um, the mayor and, the, uh, and uh, you know, they just wasn't very supportive to get through the zoning. You know, zoning was always a big issue because uh, it was, you know, it, it had been an illegal activity. So nothing was specifically zoned for cannabis, right, uh, where now you have communities actually building cannabis zoning in. And so, um, yeah, we we had actually, we were, you know, we were literally a day away from, from picking a different spot. And then uh, we ended up having to shift it. So it, it, it worked out well in, in the end. For us, but, um, you know, I know that town today probably really regrets um, giving up uh, all those jobs. Um, and so I think it's just more of that hindsight. Um, you know, I think it's um, the conversation, at least in Canada, is evolving. You know, having a government federally legalizing it is a bit of a, it's a game changer from the optics perspective. Uh, you know, we're um, there's a lot of, you know, it, it's just easier, whether you know, everything from recruiting to, our banking system opening up. Um, you know, it's just uh, being in the cannabis industry is not a, a four-letter word in kind of in any in any part of society in Canada anymore, which is uh, which is really great. And that that wasn't that you know it wasn't like that four or five years ago.
1: And speaking of banking, I know it's it's way easier in Canada than it is in the United States. If you still have issues with banking, is it still a little more difficult than any other business that you're doing banking in?
0: Yes, unfortunately, um it's it's difficult and it's actually because of the US. So our, our all our major banks in oh. Canada, I mean or at least most of them have have US operations or interface with the US and so their issues are actually the US regulators whenever they do anything with cannabis in Canada, um US regulators will poke around and you know look for exposure. So Canadian banks are are basically um always having to, you know, uh, c- cover their behind with uh, U.S. rules because of their their extensive U.S. operations. So, so that's really, you know, kind of an indirect U.S. issue that, that comes on us. But it, it's a real issue. Uh, we had um, uh, we had one of our big banks, uh, BMO uh, or uh, Bank of Montreal, actually do a, an equity financing for a producer. And but nobody's really um, there isn't much lending in the space. And you know, you're building these factories in any other business, any other industry you're building a factory you know that a lot of that would be would have debt on it would be financed. it's it's uh, that's 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 almost like a go-to thing if you're you know i used to be a cfo and if you're building uh, you're putting out capex you're going to try to leverage that and get get some financing on it but that just hasn't been possible so i think we're probably still a few years away um and, and you know legalization is actually i think one of the prerequisites for the banks finally getting getting around to it. and you know at one point they're just they're just not going to worry about the, the U.S. exposure, you know, when the, when the train's kind of really left the, left the station here.
1: And in the U.S., a lot of it is, you know, talked about that you really need to be able to track everything from seed to sale. And a big hot topic in the United States is using blockchain, not as a cryptocurrency, not as a coin, but more as a vault, as an information gatherer that everyone has access to. Is Canada also looking into blockchain? What do you feel about that? Yeah, I, uh,
0: I mean the the I go- Not, I don't know of the government or any government entity looking at it, but I know there are certain some private enterprises looking at, uh, you know, using blockchain to to help with that. And I think uh, uh, I'm no blockchain expert, but I, I see a big future for blockchain in many areas. So it wouldn't surprise me that we end up with something uh, useful in that area. But it's not something that our regulators are. Are putting in place. I think. I think in Michigan, uh, there's, there's one state that I think has already, perhaps, mandated some blockchain technology as part of their uh, their their seed to sale tracking rollout, which I find you know really interesting. So, I am uh, I am watching that.
1: I believe you're right that it's Michigan. And What I'm hearing rumors of is that Colorado is going to follow suit in the future. So if Colorado says everybody has to be on the blockchain, at least in the United States, it seems like a better yeah, well, way great. to store information than servers. It just can be hacked. And medical patients' information is just all over the place when it could be protected in a way better, way better way.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, no, I think we're just starting to see some of the benefits of, of blockchain, uh, you know, the underlying technology. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, for medical records just generally. So, I, you know, I certainly I would not be surprised with that. Um you know, I think anything that removes the – that takes cash out of the system in the U.S. cannabis industry I think is is a positive. I mean, it's kind of the exact opposite of what, you know, having a cash-based system um, when you're a regulator doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. And obviously, you know, federal <laughs> – Federal illegality in the U.S. is uh, obviously a major major cause of that. But I think anything, you know, as Canada enjoys not having to compete with U.S. companies on the international scene, um, I do think it, it is generally positive for the entire industry as well as Canada to have, you know, the U.S. eventually lift that federal prohibition. So, you know, every little piece that uh, that moves that needle forward, I think, is, is always uh, is always great. Obviously, especially for, our, you know, our, our American uh, friends south of the border,
1: just not right away. Right away, you're like, "Hey, U.S., let us get this out. I let this. Let us get this under control. Let us become the world supplier of cannabis, and then you guys can change the federal schedule." So I'm sure, I'm sure you're enjoying yeah, well, it, it, getting ahead of the game.
0: I mean, it's uh, you know another another uh, CEO uh, another producer up here is you know said to me, and I, I believe in them. It's, it's a huge gift. I mean, they. The, the current uh, administration and you know past administrations prohibition is a huge gift to Canada because we're we're able to build scale uh, we're able to access capital markets uh, you know raise financing at, at levels that the you know, I think the, the industry uh, in the U S would, would love to be able to, to tap into that and, and you know when you when you can raise you know money fuels growth and um, you know we see our, our top producers now Canada is exporting medical cannabis to I think about fourteen or fifteen countries um and we're starting to see countries not even set up domestic production and just and just rely on imports so it's uh you know it's really exciting and i think some of the valuations that you see in canada um are certainly include the kind of global um global market share factor uh, you know i'd say where you know, if it was just the Canadian market, um, you know, you couldn't sustain the valuations of the kind of industry at large. But, um, you know, when you look at the large producers in Canada, people are, are betting on, you know, percentage of global market share. And the global market is, is incredibly large. So that, that's really what, what is exciting. And, I mean, it's, um, it's really cool to be able to take, you know, the cannabis business and, and take global. You know, we had and We just recently announced we're, we're buying a huge hemp CBD farm in, uh, in Uruguay. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's about seven. Or it's about you know 200 acres to start, uh, but you know, expandable to, to probably a few thousand acres. And you know, they allow outdoor hemp production, but you can grow high CBD strains. And you know, it's only a matter of time before I think we're going to see outdoor THC production uh, in, in many of these southern jurisdictions. And so, you know, that's starting the long game. And I say long, you know, the ten, maybe the ten year game or fifteen year game of of super low cost. Um, to be on you know, cannabinoid imports, Um, which is going to shift the whole kind of domestic industry to the to the value added processing, right? Which is where where the value always is, right? It's in the products and in the, in the IP in the retailing um so i think i think that that's starting and you know our our hedge or our bet is on you know we're, we're going to focus on on uruguay south american production to to fill that need uh, globally at first uh, because we can bring that product into canada but you know we know eventually that that cbd and hopefully eventually thc and other cannabinoids are going to be, be able to grow outdoors very inexpensively
1: and in- your best guess, what do you think is more important long-term? Is it becoming an international player or is it getting in the right position to be able to manufacture and distribute the edibles and the extracts when that becomes legal in Canada?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, a tough, it's a tough question. Uh, Canada is, is relatively a small market, so that, that's going to depend on how fast the other, how fast the, you know, uh third and fourth and fifth country legalized Um, I mean some of the larger countries like Germany is obviously well in its way uh, Australia etc and so you know I think we we have to do both and so you know we're we're hedging our best I I, you know certainly in the short term it's going to be Canada Um, these these, uh, international markets are still relatively small but you know looking kind of I'll say three to five years out uh, a lot of that value is going to shift internationally um, and, you know, it starts to look like any large consumer products uh, company. I think you need to have, you know, today I believe the values in cultivation, particularly in Canada, because there's just not enough supply to go around. And so, you know, you can make the best product in the world, you know, the best edible or vape pen or, or pharmaceutical product, but you can't make it unless you can actually obtain the, the you know, the cannabis. And so producers have a lot of power in you know, you have to attach yourself to producers, so producers are able to sign great deals, bring in that IP, make those products. But over time, as supply eventually catches up, then then I think the value is going to be in who has the best products and who has the best distribution. Uh, and so I think you have to you have to be kind of you know if you want to be a global company, you have to work on, on all those pieces. Um, but you know, at the same time, if you want to just if you want to just do one thing really good, I'm most excited about you know uh, infused uh, infused uh, product. Uh, licenses, you know, like you have in Colorado, the the MIP licenses, you know, with a very small facility and you know just a you know a great a great product, you can you can create a lot of value, um, and it's kind of an entrepreneur's dream, right? There there are no there are no yeah. cannabis brands, and I say that I say that the big asterisk, right? I mean, there's a lot of brands. You and know, your listeners will know of brands, but um, when you you know the average person in in North America, the average person in the world doesn't know a single cannabis brand, and so it, it, it you know as far as we've gotten, I really view it. You know on a global scale we' we're at, we're at ground zero as far as building brands, so it's like the race of the hunt and obviously you know you know the value of a global brand right i mean it's huge value so that for me that's that's the race that i'm I'm hoping to put put my company into a position to run
1: I think that's the smart race to be running in because producing products you know there's only so much you can do with producing flour except the race to the bottom. Can you make it cheaper? Can you get your yield up, you know, a little bit higher THC after that? Yeah,
0: and, you know, I've tasted, the. Uh, you know, there's so many bad edible products out there. You kind of wonder, like, isn't, isn't the point of it to taste good? <laughs> and so, well, um, you know, it shows you that there's a lot of room for improvement. I mean, there's some great New products Jersey. out there.
1: Uh, but I'm in New Jersey where there's very little access to edibles that you can get through the dispensary. If you have your card, you can get them.
3: But they can only really get, like, Cough drops.
1: Yeah, they purposely make them taste like crap. And their answer to it is, it's a medicine. It's not supposed to taste good. And I'm like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Cough syrup tastes better than these, you know, lozenges that you're given that really give you a taste in your mouth for like a half an hour that you've got to you. You gotta try and get rid of. It. So I understand it's somewhere that it is medically legal and you can produce them it's not even close to what people are doing in Colorado. There'll be no brand of edibles the way you're allowed to make them in New Jersey. So, Yeah, no, and that's,
0: uh, you know, I think over time, uh, you know, those rules have to homogenize. Like it, it, it's really hard to build a brand, especially in the States, right? I, I've talked with many, Uh, And met many um, people that are producing great brands, but you have to, you know, recreate your production facilities in every single state. I mean, there's no, there's no product in the other place where, you know, you you want to just build one or two big factories in the States. You don't want to have one in every single place. It just, it's too complicated. And that, that really inhibits, you know, the growth of the industry where, again, that's, you know, another Canadian advantage. We can have one facility in Canada that produces for the Canadian market and produces for export. you can just have one spot and you can just build one really big, great facility It's a huge advantage.
1: I am more more jealous of Canada's cannabis than I am your hockey teams, Because you really do have it figured out way better than we do. And I hope the United States is paying close attention. Because I think they're going to regret it. I think later on down the road, it's going to be like stem cell is now in the United States. We stopped it for so long. But now we're so far behind other countries that people are still leaving to go to Germany to get surgery the United States has not caught up on. Yeah, I see the same thing happening in cannabis. And I have a feeling we're going to be looking up north, going, "Damn it, you guys are so far ahead. We're never going to catch up." All right. So-
0: yeah. Well, you know, I'll never bet against. I'll never get bet against American entrepreneurialism. So, you know, hopefully, in, in two and a half years, things will change. Uh, and so, you know, we're working on that. And um, and you know, so I think uh, at the same time, I mean, one of our you know, just just recently, a few weeks before that, our probably our, our most ambitious project uh, to date uh, is one uh, with uh, a gentleman called called Peter Quiring.
1: Uh, Got him and, down. Uh, that's who we're talking to. about. Is, you beat me to yeah, it. Yeah, that's so uh, go ahead, go ahead.
0: It, it's very large. Yeah, no, that's uh that's kind of where we're a like your viewers might know, uh, you know, the third largest producer in Canada, they're based in Leamington. It's really Canada's uh kind of greenhouse uh you know Mecca or you know cultivation area. But uh Peter, you know, when we look for partners, we look for, for one of two things typically. We look for uh, a site with great attributes, you know, a place with lots of uh, already existing power because that takes time and money to bring in if you don't have it and just in a place where you can really build a great facility, you know, or we look for great teams of proven operators, not, not necessarily in Canada, but so people that are able to grow and scale large facilities. And then with, with Peter Quiring, you know, he is, the, he is Canada's largest uh, a, a greenhouse builder. Uh, he's able to build about an acre of greenhouse every couple of days. Uh, with his own factory, and he's one of the the largest greenhouse operator in Canada. So we have you know growing tomatoes and cucumbers. So we have somebody who can build and, and run incredibly large and organic cultivation, uh, you know uh, hundreds you know hundreds of, of acres of facility. And so our phase one is one point four million square feet, uh, but it's on you know we, that's about twenty seven acres uh, and on a hundred acre property. Uh, that has you know pretty much fully powered, so we're really excited to um, to move forward. That it's really gonna you know, that adds a lot of capacity to to our platform. Uh, you know, with a great kind of proven operator that we can that we can back.
1: So, how difficult will it be for Cannabis Wheaton to help Greenhouse uh, get their ACMPR license?
0: Yeah, so because of our existing license that we have with, with Colab, we. Uh, we essentially uh, can apply for a second site of our license. And, and you know, and I'm kind of simplifying it, but what it essentially means is you can get your site licensed about as fast as you can build it. Uh, once you're completely built out, you probably add another, you know, uh, six to eight weeks for, for inspection. Uh, but it really, it removes what has been historically a, a very long licensing bottleneck in Canada. People have waited years to get the licenses in Canada. Uh, but now that department is, Is both staffed up more, but also if you already have a license, you know, as a regulator, they're going to they're prioritizing people that already have licenses because they've already reviewed your materials, you know, your SOPs, etc. So it goes faster. Um, So you know what we what we provide that him is is you know essentially that license, but also the cannabis expertise behind it because. Uh, you know, cannabis is at the end of the day, grow, good growers can grow anything, but there obviously there are particularities with a cannabis plant, and so that's kind of the, the additional expertise that we're lending, uh, lending him and his team to, you know, pivot into the into the cannabis industry. And is it always about
1: getting back product in return for capital, or with Peter, is it more about we're going to supply you with capital, you're then going to build greenhouses for it?
0: with uh, with peter uh it, this one is structured as a, a joint venture and so we're we're literally splitting um you know it's like a 51 49 uh percent split and we're we're really just uh splitting the you know we're, we're sharing in the output of that facility and so uh you know it's um we're both contributing uh you know capital uh he's contributing the land uh building up the facility at um you know at, at reduced prices and so it's a uh, uh, we've been able to, you know, we created this partnership to uh, to build out this, uh, this facility. And, um, you know, I think at the speed that, you know, what I like about greenhouses, especially in like, in, you know, with so much demand that, that we're going to have in Canada, you really, it's really hard to build indoor facilities fast because it's just, you know, you need a lot of trades and buildings take time, but greenhouses go up very fast. And so greenhouses allow a lot of build capacity a, at a speed that you just don't see with indoor, indoor grows. And so we're really looking to, you know, get that product into our, uh, you know, into our system, um, you know, as soon as possible. Uh, and um, I think, you know, greenhouse is going to really be, um, you know, as you move into edibles and and, pads and other types of products, you know, you, you know the inputs of those products I think are largely going to come out of greenhouses. And I think it'll just be the, you know, in my view, the top shelf bud and, and the, the flower, you know, for the most part, I think the really good flower will come out of uh, indoor facilities. Uh, you know, people, Some of the sun-grown folks would would disagree with me there, but, you know, we we haven't – I think we're still seeing that. And so, uh, you know, we knew that having a large greenhouse platform – and we have several other greenhouses still. This certainly be the largest one that we have. It's an essential part in making sure that we have really meaningful supply going into rec.
1: And I read that facility will produce 120 million grams per year. That sounds – Yeah, grams. 120 million. Grams per year. That sounds pretty accurate for 27 acres.
0: Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to remember if that's if that's the total expansion or the initial one. But uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's um, yeah, it's a it's a lot it's a lot of capacity.
1: You know what? You could be right about that, Chuck, because I had written down 102 acres. So, like you said, it's 27 acres that's being built now. It could be that, you know, by the end of all of their phases, the whole 102 acres was going to be able to produce 100 Oh, no,
0: no, sir. Uh, Yeah, so the phase one itself, uh, we expect to produce 120 uh, million grams. So that's, um, you know, that's about, about, that's over 250,000 pounds um, out of that phase one. So that's just out of the 1.4 million square feet. Um, You know, so, I mean, all of Canada, I mean, they estimate that, um, you know, we're, we're probably going to need, uh, you know, maybe a billion grams for the whole country uh, with 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 uh, with Rec. and so you know that facility alone could produce a a big chunk of that. Um, and so you know, we'll see. For for me, it's um, you know, I think uh, like I said earlier, it's about you know, it's urgency, and it's really is a race to build that 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 supply because you know, if you go and add up all the announced expansions of all the major producers, it's actually you know, it's a ton of square footage. But um, you know, like, like in any business, you know, growing it, growing your or expanding your facility times five or times ten is huge execution risk. And so, you know, we're really focused on, on making sure that we can help our partners, you know, hit that scale because uh, you know I think a lot of the are you know they might they might run into site power or zoning et cetera. And even if they have that, maybe they don't maybe they can't finance it. But even, even our big players who are building huge facilities have all had delays. And so I think you know, that's really where the race component comes in, right? Making sure that, you know, you not only have the capacity to finance, but that your your build out goes smooth because um, you know, it, it's uh, uh there's just there's a lot of demand that's gonna soak that up and you wanna make sure you're there first.
3: Um, no, I was just saying I was um reading in Bloomberg that the cost per gram dropped 7.7% from 2016 to 2017 in Canada. And I was wondering if you think, one, that's going to affect the suppliers, and two, how you would float that tumble.
1: Is yeah, that going to continue? Yeah,
0: and I think it's, um, you know, uh, I mean, the medical market is, we've seen, you know there was a transition from just flour to oil and you know the, with the system just being medical you know assuming you're quoting a uh kind of legal sales because we're um you know interestingly our government now is starting to survey illegal sales and, and you have kind of some really interesting data sets on on the black market that but uh, you know, put yeah yeah putting that aside i think it's um you know, pot in Canada, cannabis in Canada is very cheap uh, compared to the U.S. You look at top shelf product in a dispensary, and you know, I don't know, 14 dollars U.S. a gram. Uh, I, I've seen, and obviously for for other stuff it could be even higher, but it's um, you know, I think I think top shelf is at least you know ten, twelve U.S. Um, and so by comparison, you know, um, you know your average price in Canada is about seven dollars a gram Canadian. Um, you know, really good stuff, you know, ten bucks a gram um, Canadian is uh, is really cheap, and so. I actually think we might see prices increase uh, on the rec side, you know, as, as the supply is constrained, um, you know, relative to, you know, for the average rec consumer, who's perhaps, a, uh, are most likely already a, a beer or alcohol user. Um, you know, the, the relative value for dollar, I think is, is a lot higher on cannabis. So I think, you know, I think they can afford to pay more. So the, the price in Canada, I think we largely set, you know, largely dependent on the black market. You know, we want to remove the black market. So we can't, Put too much tax on it but uh yeah so it was a long way of saying i'm not too concerned about about price compression just because people are gonna be fighting for product i mean we're, we're gonna um the medical system's been growing at 10 percent per month every month um for the last four years i think it's just finally started to slow down just because the size uh we have about 250,000 patients in the medical system and our producers can barely keep up with that you know most producers inventories are are, are running out of product all the time and then throw on you know, two, five, eight million rec users on top of that. It's going to be, um, you know, I, I really don't, I don't worry about prices getting discounted.
1: And, Chuck, the reason I started with the Sundial instead of starting with uh, Greenhouse is because that isn't a definitive agreement yet. And what I read says the definitive agreement is still probably about 45 days away. What type of things can get in the way and hold up the agreement with Greenhouse code?
0: yeah that's a good that's a good question i mean we uh, we actually just announced uh i think it was this morning it's been a long day yeah it is this morning uh a definitive with another one of our partners and a, a pharma a, a former uh craft foods plant in coburg and i know um it took a few, it took a little longer to get that one done and, and we were getting questions from our investors as to you know was it getting done et cetera and i guess you know the the general answer to you know, to that and to your question is when well, we sign our agreements, and we sign we sign interim agreements, but they are binding. And so, um, you know, these agreements are are unique. The, these you know the joint ventures or streaming agreements, and you know because it's hard to um, you know try to negotiate a 50 or 60, 70 page agreement with a new partner is a bit. Uh, you know, It's not a good way to start a relationship. So we typically start with a an interim binding agreement, which gets all the business points down, you know, five, six, seven pages, um, and then get that signed, announce that, and then work on the actual definitives. And definitives can take longer for, you know, for different reasons. But, you know, so, uh, but, you know, these are all, all all our agreements are are binding and, and, you know, there there are, uh, we usually have due diligence out on our side. Um, uh, But ultimately it's, you know, they have to get lawyered up and we have a, we have a very large team of uh, lawyers on staff. I mean, my, my partner, Hugo and his, uh had ran the largest legal regulatory team for cannabis uh, in Canada uh, prior to joining Wheaton. So we have a lot of uh, horsepower there, but, um, you know, we, we've done a lot of deals. So there's a lot of, um, I mean, uh, our uh, half and most of our legal team is still in the office right, as, as I speak to you right now. So, so there's always more work to do.
1: All right, my last question for Chuck Rafici. We're talking to CEO of Cannabis Wheaton and also chairman of National Access Canada. Just in general, what is your favorite part about being involved in cannabis? And this is from a guy stage. You might not know this. Chuck started as a politician and then got into cannabis. A little bit of a different path than most people we've talked to have taken. So what is your favorite part about being in this industry?
0: Sure. Well, just kind of, uh, 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 you know, for the record, I, I guess I, I wasn't exactly a politician, but I was involved in politics. I was the, uh, the volunteer treasurer of the uh, Liberal Party, which now forms government, kind of the, um, the smaller Canadian version of being a treasurer of, like, the DNC. Uh, politics is a lot smaller in Canada, so, you know, I think it's, it's not a, exactly an equal comparison, but just, um, you know, so I was kind of, uh, I was certainly an insider. I was part of the party you know, the, the political apparatus, but, um, that, um, I think that helped me get credibility when I was getting into this industry. I wasn't just some random pot guy, but what I, you know, yeah. what I'm most excited about, um, I, I think it's, two things. Uh, you know, the Canadian, it's exciting to, uh, to be in a business where, you know, I can go go to the U S or internationally, and uh, you know most um, and, and kind of be proud to be from Canada and and be seen as a, as a leader. Or typically, in almost any other business I've been involved with, if you're dealing with Americans going to the states, you usually don't want to say you're from Canada. <laughs> you want to you want to kind of um, be more, you know, almost pretend like you're you're from the U.S. because that's usually where the best companies are in most industries. And so you know we're really happy that Canada has a leadership position. Um, but what's been you know kind of putting putting the the, the Canadian part aside. Um, what I'm most excited about is, is that I really do feel that we're at the ground floor. I think in, in every kind of venture that whether I've invested in something or uh, you know, different stages of companies, I'm always looking at, you know, what's exciting is we have regulatory change and it's moving so fast that you're, you're really always kind of putting in building blocks of things you can do now legally you know, for some next bigger thing that's currently illegal. But you kind of put the blocks in place so that as soon as that other thing becomes legal, you're running the race as fast as possible. So it's like you're always building the, the launch point for the next step. And it's um you know it's just fascinating. It it's uh, it's it's fast moving and um and you know we'll just keep we'll kind of see what uh what the next uh year or and decade has in store.
1: Well Chuck, we've been following you or I've been following you since the Tweed days so, uh, definitely enjoy having you on Podstock Radio and plan on having you back on, maybe even as we get closer to actually knowing what's going to happen with the recreational market once it's a little clearer to even the people running it. So, really enjoyed having you on and uh, definitely keep in touch.
0: Great. No, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. And uh, I'll
1: come back anytime. Awesome. Okay. All right, we are talking to we're talking to Chuck Rafici, CEO of Cannabis Wheaton. Check them out on the TSXV. They are CBW on the OTC. They're KWFLF. Thank you, Chuck, for taking the time to call in. And uh, let's go to our next guest, and we've got a buddy. I, I call him a buddy. I've met a lot of people in the industry. This person I got to hang out with for the night and then, you know, I've just become friends with since then, and he is one of my favorite people to talk to, and you've probably heard him, as I said, on the Joe Rogan podcast, maybe on the Duncan Trussell podcast, on CNBC, but you've definitely heard his company's name if you follow cannabis, and it's Speedweed. Welcome A.J. Gentile, CEO and co-founder of Speedweed. What's going on tonight, A.J.? Hey, Hey,
2: Eric.
4: Thanks
3: for having Happy me. To buddies. On, man.
1: We're buddies. <laughs> I consider us buddies. I don't consider myself buddies with too many people in the industry. But you and uh, I'd say Stefan Sheeran, even though he's not really in the industry anymore, <laughs> kind of considered him a All buddy. Right, well, <laughs> he was my whimsical well, kind of have... buddy, but he was still a buddy. <laughs> so... Well, I
4: like it. I, I hadn't prepared an acceptance speech so, uh, but, but still, I'm,
1: I'm glad to be your buddy. My
2: buddy. The my
1: buddy award. You've got the my buddy award, AJ. You my buddy, so other people who are listening might not have heard your story. So, including, by the way, when I met you, I met you and your wife, and now you're on the air with me and my wife. So, I know she doesn't really know your background and your story. So, give listeners a little bit of the backstory, how you got into cannabis, Almost lost everything before then becoming SpeedWeed. Okay. Let me me run through this kind of quickly for you
4: guys. Yeah. Um, Spent about 20 years in the tech industry and was there during the the, sort of the dot-com boom. Started out in the 90s. Uh, Worked for different internet providers throughout my career. Uh, Worked for a startup that was the first national Macintosh-only internet provider. Uh, sold my equity stake in that in the late 90s and did pretty well with that and then became a consultant in the late 90s, early 2000s in New York, uh, making a ton of money doing tech consulting end-to-end for businesses. This was uh, similar to cannabis in a way where back then, if you said blah, com, it was just you drop the mic, walk off the stage, and yeah. just some money rains down. Um, so, So it was great. We had a a tremendous business. I brought in my brother, who's also my business partner, Steve Weidner, and I brought in a lot of people I've worked with over the years. We built a fantastic business, and then the bubble burst in 2000, 2001. We lost everything. We rebuilt our tech business again, this time focusing on application development for um, financial agencies, for law firms, sort of, you know, good payers high ticket items. We built that into a multi-million dollar business. Again, fantastic. Life is great. Um, Most of my clients, including the FBI were in world trade center. And on September 11th, we lost about 85% of our business. We were decimated. So again, starting from scratch now, 2002 uh, Mm -hmm. focusing on application development for government agencies. So elected officials, um, small villages, small towns, building enterprise-level applications. Eventually, we worked our way up to developing software for the U.S. Congress, and we were one of only three companies authorized to do so. So, so, so again, we, it's like I'm walking through the raindrops. No matter what happens, we're going to be fine, and we'll build it up. So uh, we built another great business selling to the U.S. government and to the states, and we had that business for a number of years, and then the financial crisis hit in 2008. And the government's not paying their bills. Uh, the banks got paid, but, but we, didn't, we did not get paid. So months, months went by, and we got to the point where we refused to support our congressional clients. We just did not do any work for them anymore. Um, they were calling. They were getting upset, and I said, look, we're a small business. We need to be paid. I'm not doing the work. And I found myself on a phone call, a conference call with, I don't know, 100 people on it. I don't know who, who, how many people were on it. General this, major that, um, the call was led by the, the General Counsel of the U.S. Congress, so their lead attorney. And she said, if you don't do the work for the congressional clients, we will send an FBI agent to your apartment, which is on Woodbridge Street in North Hollywood, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. <laughs> You're like to... Go ahead.
2: <laughs>
4: we will send a special agent there, put you in cuffs, handcuff you to a desk at the L.A. field office, and you will do the work from there for free. And what? I said, "Yes," and I said, "I think we fought a civil war over this," which was a good line, and I got a couple of laughs. But,
2: but it didn't get you hung anywhere, up phone,
4: <laughs> hung up the phone and was just trembling in my it's in my living room, just just in the fetal position, um, because they really can send an agent to your house. I don't know. I'm I'm looking at you know now at you're the window like, at is there a bug
1: Yeah, that wasn't an empty <laughs> yeah. threat.
4: I'm not par- You know, I became completely paranoid. So I call my brother who's on the East coast and he's the cannabis guy. I'm the, I'm not the cannabis guy. I am the, I'm the high strung type A personality, as you now know. Um, <laughs> I call my brother Gino and he, and he, he goes full like Matthew hey on me. Let's, you know, let's change our energy. Let's let me come out to the coast. We'll, we, you know, we'll figure it out. We're going to be fine. Um, I, I, and I believed none of that. You know, everything was right, crumbling right. again. Leave
1: your bottles at home.
4: <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely. And, and keep your clothes on. Right. So he comes out to L.A. And uh, the first thing we do is we go get our doctor's recommendations. Because uh, that's, what, that's what he wanted to do. And, and I didn't want to do that. I'm petrified by that. I said, I'm not going to Kaiser Permanente and taking off my clothes in front of Dr. Rosen and asking him for weed. I'm not going to do it. My brother says, no, it's nothing like that. You go with the special doctor. and Okay, so we go to, uh, I think it was San Fernando. It could have been Beirut. I don't know. It was not a nice area. So we go into the building, which is surrounded by barbed wire. I kid you not. We go into this office, completely barren. It looks totally un- not legit at all. And um, <laughs> the receptionist says, the doctor will see both of you now. They're like, now oh, I can't wait. I doctor. Yeah, <laughs> right, I uh, I'm with my brother, I, so I think I have to, like, strip down, do a physical with my brother in the room, you know, sit on the butcher paper and do the whole thing. So we go in the office. There's a doctor. I guess he's a doctor. I, I don't know. Sitting across the desk from us, and he just looks at me and says, uh, why you need weed? And he called it weed, I swear to God. That's cannabis. <laughs> we didn't use the word cannabis for, like, the last three months. Why you need weed? And I'm staring at him I'm because I'm, I'm just deer in the headlights. And Gino's looking at me out of the side of my – I could see him out of the side of my eyes going, don't screw this up. Please don't screw this up. (laughs) So the the doctor says, you have anxiety, trouble, sleep? I said, yes, I do. He goes, good, you have weed. And he gives me a piece of paper. He looks at my brother and says, why do you need weed? My brother says, I have anxiety and trouble, sleep. Good, you have weed. So he gives us these (laughs) pieces of paper that say we can go buy pot. And we go to a dispensary, and thank God. And by the way, Mr.
0: you can also pull your pants up now. You
4: don't have to have your pants. <laughs> on. Really? Is that okay? So I shuffled out of there.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> then
4: Gino took me to a dispensary, and uh, and he was in hog heaven, but I was petrified. And we saw that it was just I, I don't know. It was. It felt like a flea market behind uh, security doors. I mean, it was just, it was just not a pleasant experience. So we needed to make money. He said, let's grow some pot and sell it to the shops and we'll make a few bucks. So we, so we sold our business, our congressional business, with pennies on the dollar, just the receivables. We took all that money invested it in a small grow that lived in my living room. We started growing weed. Everything went wrong with this grow. And it's too long of a story and it's, yeah. it's too much, but I'll get into I it, it next time. Um, but the grow went really bad. We ended up with horrible product that looked like just what you scoop out of a cat's litter box. Right. I didn't know what right. to do. We, had, we broke. And my brother says, screw it, I'm, I'm going to smoke it. So he's, he's pulling out the <laughs> ladybug wings that I had in there and the cat hair and all the other garbage. He smokes it <laughs> and he says it's potent. And then we go, uh, you know, what do we do? Can we sell this? No, can't sell it. What do we do? We can make edibles. All right, so we don't want to make edibles with butter because that's what everybody's doing. So I found a research paper from 1975 on multi-solvent extraction of cannabinoids, and so we got into the extraction business. Go ahead, Eric. I, I'll, I, you know, I, I'm like a steam train going downhill with this story, so you gotta, you got to stop me. No,
1: it's good. Uh, no, it's a good story. <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> you, went oh, from, you went from not wanting to be involved in cannabis to getting your medical card, to then going, all right, Gino, let's sell our business and put all our cards on the table. So that's big balls to then almost lose it all and figure out a way to turn it into a positive. Like that's to me, that's the ultimate cannabis story right there. So.
4: Yeah, I was never underestimate the value of being lucky.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> being lucky and unlucky what some people look at is ah they got unlucky all their stuff died you're like nope i'm gonna turn unlucky into lucky right so we started extracting
4: i turned my beautiful kitchen into what looked like a scene from breaking bad it was it definitely looked like a meth lab it was really horrible and uh i figured out an, an extraction process which is pretty common now but back then no one was doing it and uh our extract was 50 times more potent that was coming out of butter that um, but we just kind of stumbled across. And, uh, and, and because of this process, we were able to put our, our extract into anything. So we created the first gummy bears in, uh, that were medicated in California and hard candy. Uh, we put those in very professional packaging with ingredients and calorie information, legal information, dosage. And then we started selling those to shops within 60 days. We were in 60 shops. They were a sensation. People started calling us directly for the product. And uh, that's when we figured, hey, let's go from a B2B model to B2C, and Speed Beans
1: is born. So right away, your uh, business model was about delivery. How did that change in 2016? Because that's when it seemed like – major changes happened to something you already had in place and working and then all of a sudden the rug got pulled out from under you yeah um that was 2016
4: is one of the hardest years of my life Uh, 2017 even harder 2016 hardest year of my life um in 2014 los angeles city passed a proposition called proposition d which was a zoning rule and i say was because it has since been repealed, because, it has, because it's been construed as too broadly written and too difficult to enforce. Well, proposition D was a zoning rule that was interpreted as vehicles connected to a, to a cannabis company have to be zoned like the cannabis company. Therefore, yeah. vehicles are, can, you cannot have delivery. Um, and we disagreed, and we still disagree. Uh, We could have bailed on that lawsuit. We could have settled that lawsuit. Instead, we chose to fight City Hall, which they tell me you can't do, and they might be right.
1: Um, You can. You just might not be able to win.
4: (laughs) You can do it. That's right. That's right. And to be honest, Eric, we didn't win. Uh, We did not win. The the judge said our arguments were compelling because our arguments were this. Look, you got a zoning rule, right? So if you zone a Chinese food restaurant, does that mean the guy's vehicle also has to be zoned? Yeah. No other business does that. You know, furthermore, the, the Constitution allows businesses to have right of conveyance through public streets. So you can't ban me from driving through a city, and you can't ban me from conducting a private transaction with a private citizen in their private home. So Prop D, completely unconstitutional, unenforceable, and a piece of shit law, um, yeah. so, which is why we fought it. And now the judge liked the argument, but because Prop D was passed by referendum, which, meaning, which means the voters actually voted on it, he said, yeah. I, I can't overturn it. Um,
2: right.
4: Now it was passed ver- with a very small turnout. Nobody ever heard of Prop D. And what was infuriating about the Prop D case is there are 400 delivery services in L.A. 399 of them got a warning letter, and only one got a lawsuit. And that was me. I, I got the golden ticket.
2: Yeah, um, right? For, and on.
4: furthermore, furthermore, those other 399 delivery services stayed open. I actually followed the rules and closed when L.A. City asked me to do so. So it all comes to, to, to a final closing next week, how it ends up, I don't know, we're at the mercy of the court. Oh. Really, The city would like to, The city wants oh, millions God. of dollars in penalties from us. Wow. So, so is there any other
1: medicine that they don't allow to be delivered? That's what I don't understand. Like, how can, if this is medically approved, why would only one type of medicine not be allowed to be delivered when every other medicine can be delivered to someone's doorstep?
4: They send Oxy in the mail.
1: Are you crazy? Right.
4: What about
3: alcohol? Can they deliver alcohol then?
4: You sure, know? you could deliver alcohol with a license here.
3: Oh,
4: wow, that's nuts. Sure, It almost feels discriminatory. It
3: totally is. <laughs> it
4: is. Huh. and and you know I, I screened politics, politics, politics. Uh, you know for for about the first six months during the case, and my attorney's like, ah, well, let let me look. At you. Don't don't get ahead of yourself, AJ. As people tell me frequently, and he goes, he meets with the the city attorney's office. He comes back, we have a meeting. He goes. Dude, this is totally politics. This is totally politics. They need—they want you to be the poster boy for the prop D enforcement because you're no. the one with the with the media coverage. i, I mean, I had the had to freaking press on my on my front lawn for, for, for a week. It was it was insane. Wow. So they want they want it to be public. They want you to suffer, and they are not going away. They're they're not gonna they're not gonna settle this unless it's a zillion dollars. They want you to suffer. and uh, And mission accomplished.
1: Just about LA, like how does the rest of the state handle this compared to the way LA's handling? The rest of the state is way better than LA.
4: Now, no one followed uh, suit with what LA's done. They're the only ones. LA lags far behind the rest of the state. Now, Hmm. and I say this, this case against us was political, but Speedweed has tremendous support in the political community all the way up to the governor's office. Uh, my wife and I sit on the state panel for delivery and transport and distribution. We have been advisors to the assembly. We have good relationships with, with all the cities in which we work. There's just a couple of folks down at LA City Hall that did not dig seeing Speedweed and GQ. They didn't like that. And I, yeah. you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but if someone would have said, hey, you know, you're, you're not allowed to do this, I wouldn't have done it.
2: Right. You know, because yeah. I've
4: never broken, I've never broken the law. I've never broken a rule, and I never will. It's one of the reasons I'm still here. Um, uh, but the rest of the state, no, they. I I had dinner maybe two months ago with Gavin Newsom. You guys know who that is? Yes. Gavin, oh, he's the governor of California. Yep. I was going to say I'm governor like that, of California. Talking about Yeah, and he, he's he's going to be the cal- governor of California. He could be the president someday. And I'm talking to him about our case. And he's like, I love what you guys do. And I can't wait till you're up north. And uh, if there's anything that I could do to help, let me know. And I said, yeah, you can help me out by doing something about this lawsuit. And he said, I can't do anything about that. So L.A. is its own thing. It's its own animal. And, uh, and they, you know, they sort of march by the beat of their own drum. And it's, and it's, it's crazy to me. But that's how California is. It's, everything is very territorial. It's very local. You know, back east. Politics is, is centralized sort of around Washington, D.C., and a little bit the state capitals. I'm from New York City. We, Albany is a place that, that, like, you go to college, you, you, no one knows it's the capital, but yes. out in California, everything is so local that suddenly you've got mayors and councilmen and, 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 and these, these sort of small village politicians that are very, very powerful, and they do not want to be told what to do. And they do not like reading in the media that I feel that my business is legal, and I don't think property applies to us. They felt like that was a slight against them. It wasn't, but they felt that way. And they, mm-hmm. they flexed their muscles, and it worked. And uh, thanks to them, I fired 60 fantastic people that lost their wow. jobs
1: that day. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Your state's capital, Sacramento, is pro-cannabis. They don't have all these restraints like, you can deliver in Sacramento, correct? Sure you can. And cities
4: like Oakland, are wide open, unlimited licenses as long as you qualify. Um, those are more extreme cases. Uh, some of the cities down here, we work uh, with some cities here in the, it's sort of like South L.A., the 105 corridor, the application process is very onerous, very difficult to win a permit. Um, so it varies city to city. But for the most part, we're seeing cities open up one by one. The, the writing is on the wall. The, the people want this. The voters want this. The tax revenue is ridiculous. So, the, so now the cities are finally getting on board.
1: So in L.A., is there any benefit to getting a storefront? Because it seemed like what I read was now if you have a storefront, then you can deliver. If you get a storefront, does that do anything going backwards to help you in your lawsuit or no?
4: It doesn't. The okay. thing about our lawsuit now, – see, now that, that zoning rule is gone and no longer enforced, but the violation stands, and, and the city wants their pound of flesh. Now, that being said, there are a great number of, of uh, dispensaries in the city of L.A. that have their license. It's called a Measure M license. That's the new rule that, that replaced Prop D. Um, They have their license, they can deliver, and they want to work with Speedweed. So the rumors of Speedweed's demise have been greatly exaggerated. We are still here, and we're partnering with those shops, not just in L.A., but all over the state. And we're going to build this out into more of a franchise kind of licensee model where these dispensaries can grow their business and not deal with the headaches of delivery. And there's a lot of headaches with delivery.
1: It's funny because we were just talking to Chuck Ruffici before you, and he was talking about how hard it is to build a brand that has brand awareness in cannabis. And I'm looking at you going, he did it incredibly. Like almost everybody who knows about cannabis knows the name Speedweed. So I'm not surprised that you figured out how to – just like you figured out how to turn a crop of trash into extracts, you're going to figure out how to turn a lawsuit and some bullshit into an eventual win for speedweed, would be my guess.
3: Yeah, so AJ, now <laughs> the zoning law is gone now. So really once this lawsuit's done, you would be able to just go back into business again, possibly or
4: Oh, oh, wouldn't that be nice? No. The City <laughs> would like a would like me to be permanently banned from operating inside the city limits. They feel that's mm-hmm. fair. To, to ban a, a citizen from conducting legal business in the city. That's, that's what the city would like. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to fight that. That's, that's, that's just not, not fair to do to anybody. Um, uh, oh. But, but no, e- even if, even if I was banned from LA city, I don't see why I couldn't help out some friends and partners get their business going. I mean, yeah. that's the thing about, of, about when you, when you take good, honest people, and I consider myself one of those, when you take good, honest operators and, and, and you make them the example, then all you're really doing is sending a message to the community that being open is what gets you in trouble. Where My, my brother makes a joke about our lawsuit saying, hey, maybe we should have settled for second best. And, <laughs> you know, Eric, you make it a, great, you a great point about it's so hard to brand in cannabis. It's hard to do now. But when we started eight years ago, it was easy to do because nobody was branding because everybody was hiding. So we operated openly and we, and we were transparent and we said, this is what we do. We, we say it's legal and this is who we are and come find us. Uh, eventually, they did find us. But yeah. know, back then, t- taking a brand risk was, was very risky. There were very few brands back then. And, and I can think of a couple of them and, they're, and most of them are gone now. Most of those brands are gone now. You, brands like Hubby Bar—I don't know what happened to those guys—and some of those other edibles companies, but but gone because you had to hide.
1: Nuts. So when you're not hiding, uh, you know, put it this way: when you're past this lawsuit, whatever happens next week, are you still able to operate in other parts of California, or did this kind of shut you down from even being able to go to San Diego and Sacramento and Oakland.
4: You know, it doesn't shut us down, but it has certainly been it's been difficult because when you apply for your for your local permit and your state permit, one of the questions you're asked is, have you ever had an enforcement action taken against right. you in cannabis? Yeah. Now Dang I it. I need to check yes to that box.
1: Right. Now, As a mortgage guy, I totally get that.
4: So, Right, mortgage. So one checkbox can sync your app. Yeah, now, so I have California, 36. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. In California, you, if your app is denied, you have the opportunity to appeal it, and everything is a case-by-case basis. So when I check that box for, for applying for a local and state permit, I also send documentation that says, here's what happened to us. Here's what we think is going to happen to us. Please have mercy on our soul. Now, I have been granted a local and state permit, so we've made it through the vetting process. So my background has not been a deterrent, but, it, but I, I, I didn't sail through. I had to have multiple hearings with a lot of lawyers and get them to convince people that I'm as nice a guy as I see, you know, provide financial records and all kinds, all kinds of stuff that, that most people would not have to do. If you have felonies on your records, you don't have to provide the kind of explanations that I have to for one zoning rule violation in L.A. that happened five years ago.
1: No, it's freaking ridiculous. And then you're asking regular regulators to take a chance on you when really they shouldn't have to. Like that's not a chance just because you were doing openly – what now other people are still doing. That that's the part that's crazy. It's like it's I feel like you're someone who is in Colorado in jail for weed. Right. Like, oh wait, but they realized that <laughs> I shouldn't be in here anymore. Or now they've changed the rules and they're still coming you Imagine
3: after that me. shit. Imagine being in Colorado. That might know. be the only thing worse
1: <laughs> than being AJ being prosecuted <laughs> for something that he's knowing no. to do. doing. You know, I will I
4: have been wallowing in self-pity over this for a long time. And, and what, what brings me back sort of to center is remembering that there were people in this industry that really did go to jail for a long time and really yeah. did have a hard time. Uh, for me, this is going to be about money. Um, so because I paid my taxes like and I paid my people properly, we don't have a lot of money, but, but either way, this is just about money. No one's going oh, no. to jail. Uh, you know, my life isn't over. I'm not going to be run out of the industry. It's just about money. So I don't it's want to depend- take away from the people that came before us,
1: you know, <laughs> that,
4: that were raped in prison because they, they were selling a dime bag or whatever happened. Um, yeah. It's, it's about like, a legacy.
1: Though. When we look back at the legalization of cannabis, you know, 50 years from now, like they look back at prohibition of alcohol, you're going to be one of the people that set a lot of the stages that allowed other people to do what they're doing. So yeah, it sucks right now. But at the end of your life, you look back and you go, what did I really accomplish? And you're going to be ingrained in the prohibition of cannabis. So that's pretty fake. I'm saying that only because I know you got to deal with court next week. So while that's the negativity of that
3: <laughs>
2: happening,
1: you'd be like, I am a friggin'
2: trailblazer.
3: <laughs> your personality doesn't I, seem like allow for self pity for too long anyway,
4: so. <laughs> No, it doesn't it's not productive. But at least <laughs> no. I have something to look forward to at the end of my life.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: uh, I have a good
3: question for you Um, I, you have, you're a good storyteller, it seems, and I would like you to tell me the most interesting situation that's occurred
4: on a delivery that you're aware of, good or bad. The most interesting. Okay. So we've done, I don't know, 200 and some hundred thousand deliveries. We've never had a single assault. We've never had uh, a single robbery. So that's because of good policy. But a while, things happen. So um, this goes this goes back a few years, and um, just for anyone who's listening, this story is beyond the statute of limitations, so don't bother. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the, the driver knocks knocks on the door, uh, goes inside, and he's in a messy apartment. You know, there's there's, there's stuff everywhere. There's bongs and I guess the typical the typical stoner type of apartment. Just just a mess. Yeah. Pizza boxes. Whatever. You know, dogs are barking. It's a mess. And he conducts the transaction and uh, it's, it goes fine. And as he's leaving, he is bum-rushed by four, six um, police officers or agents or in, in heavy flak armor, m- helmets, long guns, Knock the kid down, burst into the room. Holy shit, this is it. It's on. And they knock him down. And, uh, and, they're, and they're frisking him. And they're, they're grabbing the other guy, throwing him against the wall. They're turning tables over. They're going through stuff. They're running room to room. Clear, clear. You know, it's insane. Dogs are going nuts. And uh, my driver, I, it's, you know, he, he's almost pissing in his pants.
3: Uh, I'm sure. He gets thrown
4: against the wall. Sure, he gets thrown against the wall. He gets full, hard body frisk, grabs grab some, some cash and paperwork out of his pocket. Cop looks at it. The guys look at him, the cop goes, never mind, it's just the weed guy. Let him go. Oh,
2: so, shit. Whatever
4: was going, never whatever mind, was going down you- that day, it's just the weed guy. Whatever was going down that day is way more severe.
1: Did you ever find out what they thought he was except the weed guy? We never
4: found out because he was no longer welcome in in our, in our membership.
3: Jeez! Wow. Yeah. What whatever. You, you can it only is,
1: imagine. It wasn't good. Whatever he was it being back
4: But I mean, we, you know, we've delivered to a zillion foreign stars and and anyone who you know in Hollywood who's famous for smoking weed. That's that's a customer of ours. Musicians, actors. Um. Those are stories I can't tell,
1: but nah, uh, yeah, except but, Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan actually talks about it on his podcast. But how awesome yeah, uh, delivers! It it. <laughs> and your brother started off being your first driver. Is that correct?
4: He was. He was the first driver, That's and awesome. uh, he was the first driver. Jen was cooking edibles, and I was writing the the software and the website to to take the orders.
1: So Jen, you and Jen were together when you turned your whole apartment into a grill, and then became breaking bad. You and your wife were married. We weren't married. We
4: were, we were just being married. It was, a, it was a hard conversation. We, uh, <laughs> I told her we were at a diner having breakfast. We had just looked at a house that she wanted to buy. She was desperate for this house. And I, we sit down having breakfast and I know I have to tell her some bad news and it's one of those situations where we're eating and I'm like, how, when is there, how long can I get through this meal before (laughs) I can say it? Yeah. So I don't know. We're halfway through. And I say, look, we can't buy the house. I I'm taking all of my money and I'm (laughs) investing it with my brother to grow pot in the, in my living room. And she just (laughs) breaks down into tears sobbing in her pancakes, Just, Sobbing in the pancakes. Now I'll give Jen credit. If there's anyone who could sob, you know, really sort of gracefully through chew- while chewing pancakes, it's
1: my wife. She's, she's- she didn't oh. stop <laughs> eating. She just <laughs> cried in the pancakes.
4: <laughs> so I mean, it's pancakes. you can't stop. But then after <laughs> she stopped crying, she said, "Okay, how do how can I help?" That's a good wife.
1: Not only did she let you do it, she was in on making the edibles. That's just See, like my wife.
3: I thought the story was going to be she got the house. And then you told her that the house was like, Hey, this is (laughs) good news.
2: We're going to be growing No, No,
4: it was all bad news that day. (laughs) All right. So so yeah,
3: you said your first uh, driver was your brother. Uh, After that, I mean, what is the process like of vetting a delivery driver? What do you have to ask them to know you can trust them with, Thousands of dollars of cash and
1: weed. Every time they go in, I don't know many. First question is: Do you smoke weed? Yes. All right, you're not hired.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: that's that's actually a really good question. Um, you know, when we started the delivery service, I learned how to do it because I found a couple of videos on YouTube started by uh, actually Justin Hartfield of uh, of Weed Maps videos, how to, how to do, how to start a medical marijuana delivery service in LA. These videos are like 10 years old now. So I followed his process. I hired his consultants and we got into business and the model was, um, what we call the ice cream truck model, which Jen will call the Avon lady model, which is you have a big tackle box full of products and you go from client to client you get there and you show him the stuff that he wants and you do your transaction and you go on your way. And Gene was the first driver. But we covered all of LA. So if he was in Pasadena with a client and someone called in Santa Monica, if, yeah. if, you, if you're a listener you don't know how far that is, it's like 15 oh. miles. But in LA, that's like three hours. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you got two hours, your day is shot. So the model wouldn't scale. We were getting more and more orders, but we couldn't reach these people. So what I did was I, did, I, I said, okay, well, who are the logistics companies that I know, meaning brand awareness, market penetration, um, So I I identified FedEx, Papa John's Pizza, and Domino's as companies that their names have become verbs. Hey, do you want to get – no one says, hey, do you want to get pizza delivery? You guys want to get Domino's? You never send something overnight. You FedEx it. So I downloaded those operations manuals. I spread them out across my living room, and I picked out the pages and sections that I thought would be applicable to cannabis, built a new SOP based around logistics, and then we scrapped the ice cream truck model. And we switched to sort of a, a FedEx Domino's hybrid, a, a hub and spoke model. We opened an office. We hired dispatchers. We hired drivers that would just do a couple of orders at a time instead of staying with a customer for an hour or you stay with them for 10 minutes. And mm-hmm. that was the way that, that, that we were able to scale our deliveries. And that's the way delivery is done now for the most part from the, from the bigger services it's just one and done. Um, no more is it carrying of big boxes of products around because, as you said, thousands of dollars of cash, that's dangerous. But with my drivers, it's going to be 100 bucks, and then they're back, and it goes into the safe, where it's going to be a credit card, or they're going to pay with Bitcoin, it's, and it's just going to go into the safe. Um, and they're only carrying in product for that order, maybe two. They're never, they're, they don't have a giant box with thousands of dollars in it. And, uh, and that was for scalability. It was also for safety concerns. How do you find good drivers?
1: Very, very hard. Very hard. Yeah. Any employee. You're going to take them probably from other industries that they're driving already and have a really good record for a long time. And you're like, okay, if you can deliver gasoline that your truck could blow up, you're probably going to be able to deliver cannabis.
3: Yeah. Are they right. getting- I mean, over uh-huh. Are Are they getting paid on a higher scale because they're delivering
4: weed or now they get paid when a delivery driver gets paid? They get paid when a driver gets paid for the most part now, but all of my drivers are on the books. Um, You know, this is a disadvantage for my business because none of my competitors do this. They pay their drivers cash under the table. They pay their drivers in product. And to be honest, that's how they want to be paid. That's how they want to be paid, but that is not legal to do that. So we pay our drivers on the books um, you know they're part of our. Uh, our drivers get ha- get e- equity options in the company. They get they get profit share. They get bonuses. They get they get paid okay. vacation, sick days, all that stuff. So they get the perks of a normal job. But do they make fifty dollars an hour? No. We try to mm-hmm. have our drivers average between twenty and twenty five dollars an hour plus tips as the goal. Well, that's
1: not bad. And AJ, you mentioned Bitcoin. Does Speedweed accept Bitcoin as a currency?
4: We do. We accept Bitcoin and, and about a dozen other uh, cryptos. Really, that's huge. Yeah, I'm a huge crypto fan. Yeah, because I'm, yeah, I'm a tech guy, so you know crypto has been something I've been excited about for a long, long time. It, it, very excited the last couple of years.
1: Me too. So, what are your thoughts on not just crypto as a coin, but blockchain as a solution to tracking cannabis from seed to sale? That's something you're looking into. I It's something something that we're building Um, because I I think blockchain
4: solves so many problems. Um, We we can't even list all the problems, but anytime you can take a technology and replace an an attorney, I think that's fantastic. So I love smart smart contracts. Um, So I like Ethereum and and how smart contracts are built. on The big center Ripple, Um, we accept Litecoin, Ether Classic we do, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, all the major ones. So, wow. as, as far, so as far as like uh, track and trace, I, I, I think it, it is eventually going to be the way that any state tracks sales because, because of the blockchain technology, you've got this open, transparent ledger that can't be forged, can't be hacked, and it it can't, you know, can't be falsified. Um, so so if, you, if you're employing or deploying blockchain technology in your cannabis business, you can, you can really reduce the number of times that you have to have authorities come visit your shop. Because yeah. you say, look, we to put our, everything through blockchain. Yeah, it's yep. on the blockchain. Just, just check it out. You come, come by once in a while, take an audit, make sure that we're, that we're telling the truth. If we are, there, everything's there. Um, so I think, think it changes everything, blockchain.
1: And banking, to
4: business, to wealth.
1: And also yeah. for delivery. I would think that would help you Keep track of your drivers better like every you, you're going to know where all of your product would be at all
2: times
4: yes you, 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 you're absolutely right so the driver app that we're building now has sort of a mini blockchain backend attached to it um, so you can't do big like you, you couldn't do like a hard fork of Bitcoin or something really major because uh, I don't know if your listeners know how blockchain works, but it's essentially this, everybody who's a blockchain node ha- has a copy of every transaction that's ever happened ever. So when there's a new transaction, all the nodes get a copy, that- that's why it's awesome. Mm-hmm. So if you're a driver with a mobile app, you can't really download every transaction ever. But what you can do is you can download every delivery that's happened for that business during a, uh, 90 days or something like that. So then drivers always have what orders happened, where the other drivers at war are, what product is in stock, what isn't in stock, what's available. Um, Customer information can, can now be secured but accessible. I mean, it really opens up a lot of opportunities for us. That's awesome.
1: You see any other solution to banking in the near future? I mean, without schedule changing from one, do you see any way that banking could be somewhat resolved in the United States for cannabis?
4: So in California, they're trying really hard, and they're, you know, they're looking at, at maybe setting up a cannabis credit union. Um, Fiona Ma, who's our treasurer out here, she's, she's – our, our state elected officials really want cannabis bank, banking to happen in California. Um, because I mean, they know how much money they're losing by not yeah. having a banking op- option for them. They, they, it's millions, maybe billions of dollars that they're losing, so they want a solution problem is the federal government won't cooperate. So if you don't have the federal government cooperation and you can't get FDIC insurance and you don't, can't get your charter, you're not going to get your bank. Um, but with a state doing a credit union, that could possibly work. Uh, but I spoke to someone in the governor's office specifically about this, and they said, we, we support it. We'd love to see it. Don't hold your breath uh, because it takes – millions or billions of dollars to create a bank. Um, now, I know one cannabis operator in Colorado, I'm not going to say his name, but he didn't know what to do with his money. He just bought a freaking bank. Now, that's that's, that's, that's nice work if you can get it. Um, that is the way to but go. That's, that's the way to go. Um, I'm not able to do that at this point in my career, uh, but if you can get enough cannabis operators together that all have a couple of bucks that that, we, that we'd be willing to – to finance the bank with, I think yeah. a
1: credit union could be a great option. Does That's make a good sense. idea. Yeah, does make sense. Wouldn't be able to be FDIC insured, but okay, everyone nope. just knows. Yeah, it. you
3: guys are all knowing that. are <laughs> all in the same situation.
4: Yep.
1: All right, well, interesting. And I should have known you were a blockchain dude knowing that you're a cannabis guy into technology, but I just believe that Not even cryptocurrency, but blockchain is just the like you said the answer to so many problems that I can't believe that me and you are saying it, and the rest of the country isn't. So
4: I think that people are just they're caught up in the hype of the of of the what the the price movement on these cryptos are doing. Now I'm a holder. So, uh, so uh, I am ex- so uh, of course I'm excited to see my portfolio go up. But I have to be honest, once Bitcoin hit ten thousand, it's like uh, now now even I'm getting uncomfortable as someone who's been investing for for years in crypto. Um, so I think people are just focused on Bitcoin is worth this, Ether is worth this, you no, know, Lite- Litecoin is worth this, Monero is this, this hard fork, that hard fork. No one is really speaking about. What these technologies can do for the legal industry, for government, for healthcare, you know, for banking, they solve problems in every aspect of, of American society. But it's the dollars are what are what we click on that's the clickbait, right? Bitcoin hits fifteen grand, I want to click on that. Bitcoin's a bubble, it's about to burst, I'm gonna click on that. Who wants yeah. to click on Monero is going to do a hard fork and this blockchain is going to be deployed and blah, blah, blah. No one knows what
1: you're talking about. Well, very few people even understand that <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: cryptocurrency isn't just what blockchain is. Like, blockchain can be converted into a coin. That is what cryptocurrency is. Blockchain can also be used as a security device and an information gatherer. And that's where I think people kind of have that disconnect. Like anytime you mention blockchain to most people, they just go, yeah, I don't believe in Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, I'm not talking about Bitcoin or
3: cryptocurrency.
1: I'm talking about blockchain. So
3: just take time. It will
1: take time. We're just
3: talking about data.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: I think someone had to explain it to me six times before I really understood. I think that was was me. (laughs) I think I explained it to
1: you six times. Steve. (laughs) All right, so moving on to uh, your products and your service, because I went through the website and you've got some friggin' interesting stuff that I just want your uh, your two cents on your take on. Starting with the weekend box, what is in a weekend box that really it's, the name and is? How the, do I get one? It's the greatest <laughs> name ever. Like it's Friday, <laughs> I need a weekend box.
4: Oh, uh, the weekend boxes are awesome. So we've started doing uh, subscription boxes and uh, professionally with celebrity curated boxes uh, where someone like Joe Rogan, will, he'll pick out his favorite products of the month and, and you'll be able to subscribe and you get those boxes uh, delivered to you. So
2: bucks. the weekend
4: box, I, I think we have it listed at, a, at 100 bucks online, 100
2: bucks, um,
4: yep. but it's about, it's, about, yeah, it's about $200 worth of stuff in there and it includes everything you need for the weekend. So you've got edibles, you've got uh bake concentrates flowers uh, there's also going to be some pop, maybe a pipe in there some type of smoking device so like if, if you're stuck you got nothing a weekend box is going to cover all of it even there's even gonna be a couple of non-medicated munchies in there for you so it's just sort That's of a awesome. curated box of just assorted stuff just to get you to th- get you through the weekend
1: that is great and i also saw chong's choice products so how is Tommy involved, or is that just a packaging play with Tommy? Or is he really involved in determining what his face goes on?
4: Tommy is, uh, Tommy is fantastic. He, he, he certainly uh, – I, I won't say he'll put his name on anything because that wouldn't be fair. Um, but, he'll, but he'll put his name on – like if you pitch him a, a, a cool idea – You'll we'll definitely go, Yeah, man, I'll, I'll definitely will endorse that.
2: <laughs>
4: um, just just you know, just write the check. Now right? Sure. that's on on some products like the to, Tommy Chong's the, the the smoke swipes, the wipes, they're insane how, how well they work. But the, the Chong's choice, the weed, the pot. Okay. So I'm I'm a lightweight smoker. I go through one joint a month. I just you know, it's not. It, I just want. I, I you, you hear, you hear my personality. I can't take the paranoia. I can't. I don't want to – cheese. Tommy Chong
2: took you so, deep, didn't he? Tommy Chong
4: took you deep. So, Johnny, my product manager said Chong's choice. I said, come on. He said, Tommy endorses this one. He said, this would put you down. I said, okay. I just, just. I don't even know. I, I think I took a, a Bill Clinton puff. You know, not even a full yeah. inhale.
2: <laughs> and <laughs> I was
4: just. I was out of my mind, and then I was asleep, but I but I woke up with like I don't know cheesecake crumbs on my shirt. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was full on black. Just I was embarrassed. So now I know. All right, Tommy. So Ch- if it says Chong's choice, you take that You're seriously. That's it. just not a that's a, no that's not a BS
1: AJ's choice. <laughs>
2: all
1: right, and this is one I got to know about the Corova Black Bar which is a thousand milligram THC says right, right on the package experts. Oh, only.
2: And what I need to oh, know is yeah.
1: have you been able to get one of these in Joey Diaz's hands? Has Joey Diaz
2: <laughs> asked
1: the Corova black bar?
4: I believe at one t- time, but my brother will have to confirm this because he, he's close with Joey is that Joey had consumed during a show yes. over 5,000 milligrams of THC. Dur- while during a show, he may have even been on mushrooms at the same time. I don't remember. The guy is a freaking hero. Now, having savage. Savage said that, he's a savage. He's a warrior. <laughs> having said that, anyone who's listening, don't you fucking dare take more than two no. yes. no. Don't do it. Uh, Joey has his metabolism is 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 crazy. It's, it's superhuman. Um, so the Carova Black Bars the those are no longer going to be available like after June because the dosage is too high. California yeah, is moving is. To, to small dose. Just like Colorado, the doses, dosages is 10 milligrams and they have to be separate, separate in the package, I think. I'm not sure. California, 10 milligrams is a the dose. Um, they're going to limit the number of doses per pack. So you're, you're not going to see those black bars anymore, but people buy those. Well, we sure. started. It was all about it's all about heavy, 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 and yeah. Uh, now, I, I how much time do you have? Okay, I remember being on. I was. I got an emergency phone call from my from my manager, and one of our clients was on the phone. He was a Disney kid, so he's like young. He's on TV. This is a this is a problem. He's talking about his getting his lawyer involved. What the hell is that? I don't want to go to war with Disney. So I get on the phone with this kid, and he said, "Well, I just ate." Two, uh, two packs of gummy bears, uh, you know, uh, I ate a cherry bomb bar, which at the time were 1,200 milligrams, and, like, two other things, and smoked. He had, like, 3,500 milligrams. Of, he said, I, I feel like I'm going insane. The walls are melting. You know, what do I do? I, you know, am I going to die? Should I call the cops? And it was just, like, why? I, six months ago, I was writing software for Congress, and now I'm talking <laughs> to no. a Disney uh, kid. I'm like, uh, you just, you know, drink some milk, you know,
1: just chill out, watch TV, it's all going to be good. (laughs) Get on the floor.
2: If you're on (laughs) the floor, you're not
1: going anywhere.
4: (laughs) You're going to get through this. (laughs) So how long is it going to last? I said, oh, it's going to be uncomfortable for quite a while. Quite a while. Oh, my God. It was on a three-day trip. That was a three-day trip he went on. Yep.
2: What an idiot. (laughs) Yep.
1: Yeah, people want to go deep space.
2: Oh, they're, oh, yeah.
1: they're never satisfied. A bad. Strip so they're is, calling a the bad, cops a bad on
4: strip is not a good time.
1: Yeah, that's what I tell people. You can't smoke too much, but you can eat too much. So be careful because you will want to call the cops on yourself.
0: So. <laughs> you will. You totally
1: will.
2: <laughs> AJ,
1: this has been fun, man. We got
2: to We got
1: to do this again and uh really have my fingers crossed for you and uh yeah, hope, hope you Next do week, well said,
3: right
1: hope you do well yeah, in court we, here's right. what i'll tell you be aj because the guy who can just say those little one-liners and get people to see things your way like i saw you doing on a couple of videos i watched like when you uh you were on the the new west summit and you were talking about the marketing and how people were companies like ease were uh, really hammering people's Yelps and the way you just threw in the ease comment, like, I want to ease what, what let me use a different term. Like you being that person <laughs> in front of a judge is going to at least get him to want to see it your way. Yeah. So I feel like if, if I could have anybody in the industry get me out of something by representing me, it would be AJ Gentile. So I hope you can do it for yourself too. <laughs> You're Thanks who I so call. much, guys.
4: I appreciate that. All
1: right. We are talking to AJ Gentile, CEO of and co-founder of SpeedWeed. Check him out on Twitter, AJ Gentile, G-E-N-T-I-L-E. Don't forget SpeedWeed.com. Should I throw out the phone number? If people uh, want to place an order, they can call 888-860-8472 or better. It's 2018. Go on the frigging computer. Place your order that way. <laughs> awesome.
4: Thanks so much, Eric. All
1: right, AJ. Pleasure. Talk to you later, and good luck good next luck. week. All right. I want to thank you. both our guests. want to thank Chuck Rafici to Willy Wonka Weed for starting the show, giving us a really good update not only with cannabis wheat, but also just recreational weed in Canada as we get closer to that. What's now being pushed back was July 1st, date. Looks like it's going to be August, September, somewhere around there. And then uh, getting to talk to my buddy, A.J. Gentile, who really is one of the good guys in the industry. I hope he can get out of his circumstance, and I know he'll figure out a way to take speed weed into something that we eventually know in all states, not just –
3: I think he will, man. He's been through some ups and downs. That's what I'm, I'm saying. Him, you know? If anybody
1: can come out of it smiling, it's going to be AJ. All right, I want to remind everybody check out magicalbutter.com. Use the promo code POTSTOCK, get 30 bucks off your order. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and we will be back next month for our April show close to 420. Might move the date a little bit to get closer to that 420 date we all celebrate. All right, follow us on Twitter. Keep an eye out for updates, and we will talk to you then. Have Have a
3: good night, everybody.
2: Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. And that's how she wrote.